much bigger message of autism acceptance and challenging the negative narrative, isn't it? We can't make someone conform to how we want them to communicate. And that's okay to worry that our children are growing into adults, um, but it's normal for them to grow up. It's definitely a taboo topic. So it's important to keep up like education around these areas because it's like there's always going to be some barriers. Hi, everybody, and welcome to This Is Autism podcast. My name's Kerry Haycock, and I'm the Family Development Manager at the Northeast Autism Society. And today we're going to be talking to Ness Cooper around sex and relationships. So, Ness, um, lovely of you to join us. I'm really excited about this topic. Could you just tell us a little bit about you before we get started with the questions? Um, Hello, everyone. So I'm Ness Cooper. I'm a clinical sexologist. I'm trained in sex education, sex therapy and sex coaching. And basically, I know a lot about sex and relationships from teens up until whatever age and any questions you've ever thought of. I've probably got an answer that may be helpful or put you in the right direction. So... Ness, why did you get into this um, this area of, of specialism? When I was 15, um, I ended up reading a Johnson's and Masters book. And I thought, oh, that's amazing and stuff like that. Before then, I used to be like interested in like uh, various areas because... Um, I'm autistic, so I get like special interests. Like, so, um, vegetarianism was one that was big for like about four years. And, uh, another one was neuroscience and things like that. But for some reason, sex and relationships stuck after then. But I asked my school careers counselor if it was a real career, like sex therapist or relationship therapist. And they said, no, it's not. <laughs> so I took a weird way to actually get where I am of doing like little bits of courses here and there at first and just discovering myself and blogging and going to do talks and I've just managed to get here. Brilliant. Well, we're, we're really excited to have you here. Um, and I think I think why, you know, I, I kind of have got my own ideas around this, but why do you think it's important that we talk about sex and relationships? You know, because I suppose it can be a little bit of a to, taboo word for many people. It might be something they don't feel comfortable talking about. But, you know, in your experience, why is this important? Well, sex and relationships are important because uh, basically it's a big part of our overall well-being. And even those who identify as asexual, which means that they don't look for um, sexual experiences that are physical generally, although they may have them, but we'll talk about that at some other point. But um it's like when people's sex and relationships are life is disrupted and their well-being disrupted in that way, it affects their overall well-being. And the same with their overall well-being can affect the sex and relationship well-being the individual has. And it's just a very important part of who we are. And I mean, do you still think, um, well, do you believe that it's still a bit of a taboo topic to talk about sex? It's definitely a taboo topic. It changes quite interestingly like um 
our parents probably had different forms of taboos around sex and relationships, and those can still carry on for generations and affect people. And as new generations are like getting to the stages of exploring sex and relationships, there'll be new taboos forming as well. So it's important to keep up like education around these areas because it's like there's always going to be some barriers and accessibility issues due to these taboos and stigmas. And there's always going to be questions and answers that need to be given and explained and stuff um, because of the taboos and things. And Ness, when you spoke about barriers then, um, what? because obviously we're talking about autistic people in this podcast, are there specific barriers do you think that exist um, specifically for autistic people around sex and relationships? I think uh, because of sex and relationships uh, having kind of like a lot of barriers because of taboos and that, and also Section 28 didn't help where there was a lot of restrictions on what could be said and that. Now that we've got the new curriculum formed um, in the past two years, that's going to be helpful because it does teach uh, educators to go into various uh, learning styles that should help people who don't have a diagnosis yet or are still going through diagnosis process. But um, generally... Individuals who are autistic and that will have like gaps in education in general. They're waiting for EHC plans and things like that. And um, it is we're taking quite a long time to actually get these to for the children and youth and even older adults waiting for diagnosis as well. Um, plans in place that they may need, the support they may need to help them be able to actually even attend uh like curriculum based classes such as relationship sex education uh some uh autistic individuals may find that they need different support during uh different um classes so some may need emotional support some may need to have uh time away during like gaps so they're not overwhelmed in that and because we are taking ages to get these plans in place uh these kids aren't being allowed that when they may need that to process information and stuff. So there are those barriers. Um, I also think because there's a big uh, area about disability and sex where disability is seen, people with disabilities are seen as um, asexual automatically or they're either seen as hypersexual. So um, some people take the approach that if we don't talk about it, it's better because then it, they feel it's safer, but that's the reverse of safeguarding completely. We should be talking about these uh, matters. And I, f- I think um, there's still that stigma around disability, around autism, and that that we need to shift away from to give people the opportunity to learn and be educated and be able to um have informed education where they can learn about consent privacy and then um themselves as well in the process and that so um there is definitely barriers and i feel like i could actually probably ramble a lot about it because 
I've, I just see it so often. Like, um, I've attended various trainings and connected with various people who some of them have uh, said, I work with send children. I work with autistic teens and that. And they're, they're on the training, which is great. But a lot of the people who are around them in those, uh, care settings or education settings and that are saying, oh, we shouldn't teach them this or they don't uh, teach them the correct education because they're like, oh, they won't understand it and that. And that's that's not the point. You still teach it. <laughs> it's still important. It's still relevant. Um, sometimes some individuals may need to have things explained to them multiple times. Sometimes individuals may need things uh, explained to them a bit slower than others. But that's not inherently something to do with autism because sometimes children just understand things differently or youth understand things differently and us as adults understand things differently even neurotypical adults do and may think need things uh taught to them or explained to them differently anyway yeah absolutely absolutely Ness. and when you talk about your training um because you know I'm, I'm really interested in this because i think there is a massive need for the right education for all children um you know and, and then how mm-hmm. how might we need to differentiate that for autistic children what training are you providing are you providing this training to teachers um support assistants Currently, I uh, train mostly therapists at the moment, but I do support other sex educators who go into schools because I've more gone to the route of therapy now. But um, So I will help with a few sex educators with their lesson plans and writing lesson plans and helping in that way now. Um, I, have, I, I prefer personally to do college or university above if I'm going to do a talk in person nowadays uh but yeah I'm just always trying to highlight that whilst uh, someone may be going into a school to teach uh let's say high school students and that that is important that you have as many different learning styles incorporated because you don't know who's going to be sitting there in your classroom and that who may be need to learn things like in a more visual approach a more like hands-on approach a more verbal text approach and that so it's like just important to incorporate a bit of each and have multiple activities so maybe like at the start some kids won't understand what you're going on about in one activity but then you've got another activity going on a bit later where they can they get it a bit more for themselves personally and they can relate to it even and be able to communicate it in the way that they need to communicate it. Absolutely. And it's not about forcing communication, uh, like a standardized communication other than it's important to highlight privacy and consent, of course, throughout. But from my experience as a therapist as well, seeing often generally older individuals and that um, we all have our own ways of communicating and that and there's no standard of communication as long as things are consensual and safe. That's important. Yeah. And I, I think absolutely. Yes. I think as well, what you're talking about, what I'm kind of hearing is that much bigger message of autism acceptance and challenging the negative narrative, isn't it? You know, and misconceptions, if we talk about relationships, misconceptions like autistic people don't want friends, they don't want to be in relationships mm-hmm. when actually that's totally inaccurate. It's just that friendship might look different. Relationships might look different to mm-hmm 
from a, a non-autistic perspective, but that doesn't mean that that's wrong. So a lot of this feels like, you know, it is about that undercurrent, isn't it, of misunderstanding. You know, when you were talking there yeah. about communication differences, everybody has their own valid way of communicating. That may not be speech. It might be the written word. You know, it could be anything. Um, and it's about how can we adapt what we do as practitioners or educationalists to meet the child halfway rather or the young person halfway yeah definitely finding with young people and like teens and like university students and that that we don't want to rush them as well uh, rushing doesn't seem to work it seems to we need to go at their pace we we can't put them to our pace because again we're standardizing it we're giving them our own standards and that like you should be at this stage when technically we all know that stages are kind of like they're invented by just a group of people <laughs> and that and they're all different for everyone so yeah and um i think just listening as well is important um and answering questions when needed don't be feel like you have to be the sole educator as well it's important because uh, sometimes we will learn things a bit easier from different people and that's perfectly okay uh as always they're doing a safe and consensual and approach and that like friends can be a good like let them talk to their friends as well because i know there's some uh people i've spoken to who are like oh they shouldn't talk this to their friends at all and that and i'm just like no that's kind of a normal de developmental stage that's a safe area where they can discuss things a bit more safely and things sometimes and that because it can be a bit overwhelming and scary particularly with adults um so yeah and being if you're a parent as well talk about it with them if they ask don't say i'm not going to talk about it that was going to be my next kind of question ness is around you know how do parents um sometimes feel around this idea of um the the child the young people having access to a curriculum around sex education is there kind of barriers and challenges from a parental perspective um, I find that parents, sometimes uh, they may have a misunderstanding about what's taught in the curriculum. Like when teaching youth and that, I wouldn't be teaching them or talking to them about the things I would talk to someone over 18 about. <laughs> and um, that, and also um, sex education isn't about telling uh, children what they should be doing because that's sexualizing them. We, it's like giving the resources that they may need to make sure they're safe and uh, you you never do it in a way that's going to be like make them feel they have to conform to things and you don't do anything overly explicit I, I know there's a lot of uh, <laughs> threads online that thinks that it's all about explicit and that but generally there's a big focus on like making sure you feel safe in yourself, making sure people around you feel safe. And that's like a big part of the education. Um, feel confidence is a big part, uh, self-esteem. It all interplays into this. And whilst there may be some kind of scary seeming topics every now and again, they're, they're not, they're not sexualized in the way that some resources out there may be like, stating and that it's just like 
honest down to earth like information and it's like yeah yeah I I think that's really useful for you to try and help clarify that for families actually Ness because I think there is a worry of you know what what is our children young people getting taught um you know in education on on that note obviously you touched on adults and I'm quite interested just to understand kind of what what would you support adults with because I know you mentioned last time we spoke around interpretations of pleasure um you know which you know talking on this podcast some people might be like wow what you know where are we going with this but what what how does that differ from obviously it's very different working with children but when we're talking about adults what kind of work would you be doing there so with adults often I'm helping them learn about scripts or routines that they've been taught that work against them accepting themselves generally and often that is actually due to a lack of sex education or not having uh, enough people to talk to about things when they needed to at younger developmental stages so that's why youth sex education is actually very important because it gives them individuals a chance to discuss that now and um there's a lot of like uh things that are produced by like how we think we should be acting and that and generally most of the time you look at have a discussion with someone and you you find out they've been beating themselves up due to something they thought was wrong and generally know what they're doing is perfectly fine as long as it's in private it's consensual and stuff like that and it's like I know it probably sounds quite easy saying oh I'm just making them realize that those things are in play and that but it it can actually take quite a long time because psychologically things can build up and uh we we form our own barriers there's the social barriers there's also other expectations we have within our own personal relationships at play and stuff like that so um it's just getting people to be comfortable in themselves generally and uh when it comes to pleasure and stuff um that may be like uh talking to someone and like uh saying to them yes it's okay to enjoy your body and yes that's fine and that and then also i have noticed with uh i some of my uh past um experiences in teaching and stuff that there is a slight difference some with some not all uh, neurodivergent individuals where there's a confusion because of masking and there's also another confusion because of um, how some neurodivergent individuals uh, new sensation and that in a different form of relief relief as well and stuff and um, not a sexual way but there there can be like a a lot of conflict because they've been told never to like uh, stim for instance and that can weirdly cross over into like how they also want to use their body in other ways as well because they've been told not to do it in one way yeah I think that's interesting talking about um stimming as an example i know in the past i've had experiences where adults have been told that they're being sexually inappropriate in some Mm. way however it was actually not at all you know it was um, a sensory seeking um you know that this individual wanted to rub fabric 
Um, yeah. But immediately people get labelled as, you know, sexually inappropriate, sexual deviant, you know, these awful yeah. labels that get stuck on people when actually it's about understanding what the person is getting from that experience, isn't it, I think? Is that yeah. what you're trying to say, Ness? Basically, and I don't think by the... Um DMS has played a good part in any of that because basically uh, that's a diagnostic uh, manual that if anyone isn't aware that's been around for quite a long time now and um, it's fetishized and sexualized things that are generally common behaviors and it's not helpful. No well I think you know we could have a whole podcast series on the dsm couldn't we (laughs) you know and and how actually it's not helpful uh for many individuals let's just say have you heard about the northeast autism society's family development team we offer support to autistic people and their families before during or after diagnosis we have toddler groups family workshops support hubs and home visits and we also have a private facebook group you can join called family networking where you can share experiences, tips and support with other families just like you. Find us on Facebook under Northeast Autism Society Family Networking or on our website at www.na-as.org.uk. Hi everybody, Kerry Highcock here from the Northeast Autism Society. We're back for the second part of our This Is Autism podcast and we are joined with the lovely Ness Cooper talking about sex and relationships. So Ness, I just wanted to um, have a little chat for parents really because we get a lot of families that come to us and ask questions around um, you know, sex and relationships, particularly sex education. So how can parents um, broach the topic of sex education with their children? Is there, is there an adolescence, is there a way of doing that? Well, if you're thinking about talking about sex and relationships with your young person at the moment, they've probably already started having questions about what you want to discuss with them. So they they aren't going to be taken by surprise as such by it if you're worried about like shocking the dynamic a little bit and weirding your kid out it, it'll be fine on that front um i think giving them the option to have multiple forms of information is good because maybe on a particular day you're deciding today's the day i'm going to do it because it can be a bit nerve-wracking to have this conversation and that um making sure that you don't set it to that particular day if they're not ready for it. But if even you manage to discuss a little bit about it, like you can signpost them to, for instance, there's a website called Bish, which is uh, for youth. And it's got lots of information. So you can say, oh, okay, we can't, you, we're not really ready to have this chat together today because maybe a bit stressed or life's like got a bit busy or something like that but yeah i just want you to be aware there's this website that you can go check out um bish also actually do do training for parents so you can learn about what's needed to be spoken about or what your kids or teens may have like as Did questions you ask, have you got the Ness, have you got the the web address for that? Could you just tell us? I will, actually. I'll just get that. 
just because I think our, a lot of our families would find that quite useful. So if you don't mind just pulling that up and let, letting us know now, that would be very, very helpful. So I think anything, you know, where we can send practical signpost, practical advice would be quite very useful. Yeah. So Bish Training dot com is uh one of the sites and that will that's not the youth one as such that's the training one but he uh justin does have like a signpost where to find the um bit for your teens to go view and learn themselves as well so and he's got lots of resources as well there could you just spell that out for us? Is it okay, B-I-S-H? Yeah. <laughs> B-I-S-H-T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G dot com. So dot C-O-M. Brilliant. Thank you for that. So, Fantastic. Right. So, yeah. So any any other tips for families if they're thinking about discussing this topic with the yeah. young people? Um, don't not answer questions, even if it's out of your comfort zone be prepared to answer some of it or even like um because while some of the topics that they may like bring up and that may be a bit scary maybe sit down with them on a safe search or something and go through some sex ed resources online and search something if you're together even a bit confused um so I find that a lot of times um not answering questions can lead to frustration it can lead to um basically people just uh well individuals youth even adults and that just uh closing off a bit sometimes as well so if you're willing to give some form of answer that's better than none um don't be afraid of them learning from um school as well and ask them about their their sex ed class in school like their sex and relationship class if they've had it because you're then normalizing it as well partly because if you go how was english today they talk about that and then you can go how was um rse today did you learn anything fun from that so it's like not singling it out you're like going bringing it into the everyday like let's say dinner table discussion or something which is helpful um don't shame focus on consent if something is really worrying you and that um you can always uh seek advice from sex educators from the school even from go research stuff if something's really worrying you if you've got like a a good healthcare provider as well you can always go and have a chat with them there's some issues and that that maybe easier to go talk to sometimes a different person just to get your head around it um generally i don't see any there's not many behaviors that are inherently at risk behaviors it's when we start ignoring them and putting barriers up that causes at risk behaviors generally so more conversation actually prevents at risk behavior um yeah and and actually on that ness um you know Sometimes for adolescents, we get maybe queries around things like masturbation. Um, you know, is it okay for my adolescent to do that? And parents getting quite stressed. Now, obviously, masturbation is a typical adolescent thing yeah. that people do. Um, but I think is there some 
any information or advice you could give around that? You know, families that are, you know, just trying to normalize it, that it's actually, it's okay as long as people are safe. Um, So masturbation is perfectly healthy and it's very normal, as you just said. And I'm glad that you said that because... (laughs) Um, I often get the opposite approach from a lot of people. Uh, Okay. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so making sure that people are aware it's okay and that that's fine. Um, If sometimes it's like you, it's also we're a bit shaken as adults when our children are suddenly growing up as well. And that's okay to worry that our children are growing into adults, um, but it's normal for them to grow up (laughs) and that. Uh, teaching them about privacy is definitely an important part. Uh, consent's an important part. If you're concerned about like the uh, habits that they're doing, as long as it's consensual and safe, that's private to them. So we have to kind of um, disassociate ourselves and move our way selves away from basically being a parent so much and understand the going into an adult phase and that we don't need to know about that so Ness it's been a a very long time since I did sex education in school and I remember it um the the bits I remember is the boys got a load of tampons and we're kind of sticking them up the nose and 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 all this stuff that's my that's my memory of sex education um so so now is masturbation talked about within the curriculum um we talk about uh pleasure and it will be dependent on where uh, someone is in us uh, because it's dependent partly on the school of how things are worded sometimes. Um, so self-pleasure is being spoken about more. I, when I originally did training about 13 years ago, I remember we did uh, um, a separate unit and it was all on self-pleasure. And a lot of people there doing the training were scared of um, incorporating that because of where they were teaching and stuff. I think there's still some of that, even though um, we are teaching about like the importance of being aware that as individuals we may or, or the teens may um, explore themselves and stuff and it is being discussed more. Um, I, I just think uh, whilst there is a curriculum, it came in at an awkward time of the pandemic and it's, um, some places are still being a bit slow implementing bits and that. So, What about um, one of the, the questions I get asked a lot is around sexuality. So, you know, for adolescents that are growing up and, and find out who they are, you know, developing their identity. Um, have you got any, if so, if a young person approached their parents and said, you know, I am gay or I am bisexual or I think I am gay or I think I am bisexual, how can parents support that? discussion is there anything you think that they could do um acceptance is key because basically again uh shame stigma and that is where people end up um just ending up not being able to express themselves further and it can cause a load of issues later on in life so be accepting um don't shame try avoid avoid doing little uh jokes it may may seem 
easy to do that, particularly as uh, on TV, there's an abundance of uh, LGBT uh, tongue in, seemingly tongue-in-cheek jokes, but they're not helpful generally. <laughs> um, understand if you're worried that as long as you're there supporting them, they're going to be okay. So uh, that's very important. And if you've noticed that they have said, oh, I'm like last year they were one sexuality and then all gender and then this year changing. Just understand that humans change and just accept them for who they are at this particular moment in their life and support them. Don't yeah. absolutely, and just on the gender, um, Ness. Obviously, I think there is increasing research, isn't there, around autistic people with gender differences? I'm going to use the word difference, and, yeah. and please educate me on this if I'm using the wrong terminology. Um, am I right in thinking there's quite a lot of increasing research around autistic yes. people? Um, we're finding that there is a large correlation of um, individuals who are non-binary and autistic. Non-binary means that they don't conform to social standards of male and formal, uh, female. <laughs> formal. Uh, gosh. And um, yeah, there's increased research, but part of this is probably due to we never did research on this before. And um, a lot of sex relationships and gender research in the past was um only got through if it's uh, like a heteronormative patriarchal kind of mindset so there's probably a lot of things that we could have studied like 20 years ago that would have shown us that there was a steady increase anyway or that there was um like uh, there's uh, studies now showing, for instance, ADHD is linked to autism for some individuals and uh, more willingness to do um, non-monogamous relationships, for instance, or accepting of non-monogamous relationships. But we never studied it up until recently. So we don't know what the statistics were 20 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, so now it just feels like there's a surge in yeah. in people that are autistic and have gender differences. What I mean, it's it's a really difficult one, isn't it? And it's something I've been trying to get my head around um, because I'm not a specialist in this area. Can you just so there's lots of labels, isn't there? There's mm -hmm. lots of terminology now around, um, particularly around gender identity. So. I'm going to give you a test here, Ness, just for our, our listeners, um, just to get a bit of an idea. So asexual, what, what does asexual mean? So asexual is actually an official sexuality. And it means that someone doesn't have an interest in physical sexual pleasure. They may still have sexo because of their partner. They may just see it as a recreational activity rather than erotic to just do with okay. their partner but they don't uh they don't get the erotic pleasure generally from it as um many other individuals who are non-asexual okay and what about gender neutral gender neutral means that you don't conform to a particular gender so generally in gender we have 
gender is a social construct and it has changed a lot over time. <laughs> you can get into some big arguments about this. Uh, <laughs> But, um, we don't argue on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but I, I know well, we can. I know that at the moment uh, it's one of those things that it's very popular for people to argue on social media about. And actually, some uh, parents will argue with their uh, teens about it too. And again, it's not an accepting approach, and that we it's not helpful. But um, yeah, so. Uh, so gender neutral, don't, someone doesn't conform to society's gender. They aren't either male or female, and that's fine. They're just who they are. So I think families are trying to navigate through all, all of this, all of this, um, I suppose, new language. It, it's certainly new language for me. Um and some families, and I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with this, I'm not giving my opinion, but a lot of families that I maybe speak to think it's a fad. So this discussion around the gender differences have now become a bit of a fad and it's cool to have a different gender. What are your thoughts on that, Ness? Um, generally, when something's seen as a fad when it comes to sexuality or sexual practice even there's a big media influence as to why people are thinking that's a fad and there can be a big political influence even so um if if you're thinking that something may be a fad think where did the influence of you thinking that's a fad come from and um there are trends there always will be trends but it's more important to focus on how someone interprets something for themselves and the importance to them when it comes to gender or relationship dynamic and that how them as an individual or the people who are close to them intimately also interpret it that, that's more important than focusing that's a fad no go how important this is to you i understand this is important to you great Covered lots of stuff there, um, Ness, but before we finish, I just, I'm going a little bit off topic here. Um, I just want to talk about relationships. So, you know, in relationships for autistic people, or, you know, if you are an autistic person in a relationship with a non-autistic person, perhaps, are there any particular issues that, that, that crop up between, you know, when we're looking at relationships for autistic people? Um, some, uh, couples that I've seen in the past, um, there can be a delayed processing of certain things. And, um, I find that that can be a big issue for some, uh, because, um, we, we want instant answers sometimes for certain things, or we want someone to react happy or sad to something straight away. But when someone's neurodivergent, they may sometimes take a few days to process something and understand how they're feeling about something. And um, I think it's, uh, I generally end up uh, teaching that we have different ways of processing, but also we have different ways, again, of communicating and we can't make someone conform to how we want them to communicate uh it's like i don't think forcing someone to rush themselves through these processes is healthy because it, it can cause a lot of conflict as well so that's one um there can be also 
because of individuals having to mask so much, I've found um, sexuality and gender may suddenly feel like it changes for one partner who is neurodivergent but really it's been in the background for them for so long that they've had to mask so much things it's just gone into like let's say they got a box or basket full of things that they mask and it's like it's just gone into the mix as well and they're masking it along with the other things and that and it's always been there but it can be quite a shock to the people around them when in fact the the individuals probably thought about it for a very long time and it's finally got to the stage where I can't mask this anymore. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense, Ness, actually, when, when you look at autistic masking and, you know, people, you know, getting rid of the mask to st- some extent, although I would argue that's very, very difficult to do. Um, mm. Yeah, that that's actually just made a lot of sense for me, what you've just said around around masking and how that, that interplay with sexual identity or gender identity. Yeah. And um, I think sometimes also I find some couples who were once autistic and that, and even with um, younger couples as well, um, not being able to go to the same social things together all the time because of being overwhelmed, that can feel... Uh, couples can sometimes feel a bit isolated, each of them, because of uh, navigating how to navigate the not being overwhelmed and doing shared activities together. So, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, because uh, actually it, it's back to kind of that double empathy theory, isn't it, that Damian Milton describes around communication for two people, you know, that often the communication issues arise when you have a a non-autistic person and an autistic person together in a room. Actually, autistic people, when they're communicating together, they're absolutely fine. So I suppose if you're in a relationship as an autistic person with a non-autistic person, um, there can be real difficulties in communicating with each other. Um, But then... Some might argue that that person is just an undiagnosed autistic person. It's a possibility. <laughs> I, I've, to be fair, um, I, I date an autistic individual, and we 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 go to social events like I've never been able to before. So that's quite amazing. Like we kind of ground each other. But um, I do wonder about some of my past relationships too. <laughs> Getting a bit personal. That few that were a bit more successful in the past, but. Maybe they were undiagnosed. (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Well, Ness, thank you so much for joining us. That has been um, really, really insightful. And hopefully our listeners will take something from that. So thank you very, very much. And I'm sure we'll see you again soon. And if you've got any questions that you'd like answering or there's an issue you'd like to hear discussed, Get in touch with us at info at ne-as.org.uk. You can find us now and subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts or on our website at www.ne-as.org.uk forward slash podcast. See you then.